Good afternoon. It's a joy to be here today. If your Bibles aren't already open to Matthew chapter 7, I ask that you'll open them there now. Uh, we have just read this recently in our, our Bible reading, our New Testament reading on Fridays. Uh, and this passage that Christopher just read for us in Matthew 7 is a fairly well-known passage in the Bible. Uh, yet, too often, it's misapplied in our culture, and I'm afraid unapplied sometimes within the church. I'm afraid that my tendency in the past when I've approached this passage at times is to immediately focus on what it doesn't mean. Uh, All the areas in which certain kinds of judgment are legitimate and necessary. And that may be helpful at times to recognize that other passages in the scripture would show us that there are certain judgments that need to be made But that's not the reason Matthew 7 is in the scriptures. (laughs) There's a positive point, uh, a positive principle that we deeply need, that's deeply needed among God's people, something that I know I have failed to apply much too often. Among God's people, as we seek to grow in faith and knowledge and righteousness and obedience, it can be easy to start developing a self-righteous, arrogant, judgmental, or critical attitude towards others. If we're not careful as we cultivate uh, our own sanctification day by day, we can also be watering the seeds of a judgmental spirit. So the question I want us to ask today is, how can we uproot the judgmental spirit? What positive attitudes can we cultivate to combat the critical and self-righteous heart? Uh, How can we view ourselves our brethren, people in the world around us, uh, in a way consistent with God's love and mercy. As we look here in Matthew 7, uh, the first thing that I want us to notice is that we need to cultivate humility. Read with me again in verse 3 through 5. Starting in verse 3, it says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You notice the emphasis in this passage is not just how we shouldn't view others, but rather positively how we should view ourselves. How we should humbly recognize our own need to change. How we need, uh, before we would scrutinize or critique the lives of others, to first evaluate our own hearts and look introspectively at our own lives. And if we do that, uh, if we give the proper attention and effort and energy into evaluating our own hearts, we may find that we don't have a whole lot of time to police the spiritual lives of others around us or stand in judgment over their relationships with the Lord. We need to make sure that first we are looking into the mirror of God's word ourselves. James chapter 1 verse 23 through 25 talks about God's word as a mirror. Uh, It's not a microscope or a magnifying glass to allow us to to look at the the faults of others. That's not its purpose. Its purpose, first and foremost, is to look at ourselves and see the areas that we need to change. And so as we think about our Bible studies, whether it be our personal Bible study, our our group Bible studies, our, our sermons and classes, let's remember that the focus there 
is not for us to get together and to talk about everything that society needs to change and everything that our culture has wrong and everything that our neighbors are, are doing wrong and everything that our government is doing wrong. Our first and foremost responsibility is to get together and talk about what we are doing wrong and what we need to change, what we need to grow in. That's how we look into God's word as a mirror. And when we look at our own hearts and lives in this way, we are going to find plenty of reason to be humble. We aren't going to be able to look down upon others around us because we will see that we are in the same condition before God. That we're not on some higher moral plane, but that we as well are sinners convicted by God's word in need of his grace. That if by God's grace we are living righteously, it's only by virtue of his grace that we are able even to begin to live such a life. In James chapter 4, later on in that same epistle, if you want to turn over there with me, James chapter 4, James continues to talk about an attitude of humility. Starting in verse 6 here in James 4, it says that God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. And he goes on to describe how we need to mourn over our sins. Verse 9 says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So that's our context here. If we want to be lifted up by the Lord, if we want God's grace, we need to approach him in humility, recognizing our own sins. But notice what he goes on to talk about in verse 11 and 12. It says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you to judge your neighbor? Think about that question. Uh, the point that he is showing here is that I am not the judge. I am certainly not the lawgiver. In God's courtroom of justice, I'm not in the jury box. I'm not on the witness stand. I am the convicted. I am the guilty. I am on trial. And so there's no room for me on God's judgment seat. If I set myself up as the judge of other people's lives, I am challenging his authority and in conflict with the law. And so I need to first see myself not as a judge of the law, an interpreter of the law, um, making sure that everybody else knows what they're doing wrong. First and foremost, I'm a subject of the law. I need to strive to be a doer of the law. Is that how we view ourselves? Uh, even as we seek to preach and teach, do we first and foremost see us as, as doers and subjects of the law, looking into the mirror of God's law, and yes, sharing that mirror with other people, but first and foremost, we need to recognize we are not the judge. We are simply pointing people towards the only one who has the right to be the judge. And if this is true of my relationship with my brethren, how much more is it true in my relationship with the world around me? Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, here in context, we see um, 
a, a treatment of a situation where there was a necessary judgment that needed to take place. Here in 1 Corinthians 5, there was one who was involved in a, in a rebellious and continual sin uh, against the Lord, and the congregation needed to handle that for the well-being of the flock, for the well-being of this brother. But notice as we get to the end of this section in verse 12 and 13, it says in verse 12, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So yes, there is a place, certainly, within the body of Christ, within the family of God, that we need to make sure that we are looking out for the spiritual well-being of others. And that may involve some judgment where we recognize that somebody is not living in fellowship with God, therefore they cannot continue to live in fellowship with us. But he makes the point here that we don't have that same role and responsibility in our interaction with the world around us. That God is their judge. My role in relationship with the world is not to function as a judge, but rather to let God do that. And so we have a responsibility to shine God's light, to share the good news, to point others to God. But it is not our role to sit in judgment over other people's lives or be the moral police of our neighborhoods or the moral police of our Facebook friends. As disciples of Jesus, we are not even primarily prophets of judgment. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 calls us ambassadors of reconciliation, messengers of salvation. I think it's interesting in John chapter 3, and verse 16, you may be familiar where it talks about, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 17. John chapter 3 and verse 17, it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And this is all in the context of an illustration that has been used of the serpent being held up in the wilderness. Um, reading in Numbers, maybe we haven't gotten there yet, uh, but we'll see there was a plague among the people of Israel. And this bronze serpent was constructed by God's direction so that the people could be saved. The plague was already evident. <laughs> the condemnation was already evident. The serpent came in that they could be saved from that condemnation. And that's what's being held up earlier in this context as an example of Jesus. He came into the world not primarily as a prophet of judgment. The judgment was already evident. The law made that very evident. But he came in to announce salvation. And as his disciples, that's our primary role. Yes, people need to understand what it is they are being saved from. We can't leave that out of proclaiming the gospel. But our primary goal is not to point out how the world has it wrong. It's not to, to point out the sin of the world. Our primary goal is to help bring people out of that sin. Our primary goal is to be ambassadors of reconciliation. And so the important thing here is that we understand where we stand before God and where we stand in relationship to other souls around us. In Luke chapter 18 you may remember the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector that Jesus tells to those who uh, viewed themselves as righteous and, and viewed others with contempt. And we see this Pharisee coming before the Lord. 
and saying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men, like uh, swindlers or adulterers or even like this tax collector. And yet the tax collector afar off is not even willing to lift his eyes unto heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me of this sinner. We need to make sure that we are not those who say, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. We need rather to be those who get down on our knees in the dust next to the adulterer and the uh, tax collector and the swindler and say, God, be merciful to us, the sinners. That's where we stand in relationship to him. And so if we're going to uproot the judgmental spirit, it's going to start by having a proper view of self by recognizing that we are not judges of the law or interpreters of the law, that we're not in the jury box or the witness stand. We are subjects of the law. And in fact, we are convicted by it. We are in the same situation as everybody else uh, and therefore cannot lift ourselves up on some higher moral plane as we talk to others about the gospel. But in addition to that, Matthew 7 emphasizes the idea that we need to have empathy for others. Matthew 7, if you want to look in verse 1 and 2 again, Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Uh, Placing ourselves on the same moral plane as others around us in humility will also help us cultivate a heart of compassion and empathy for others. This passage here encourages us to consider how we ourselves would want to be judged and allow that to then affect the way that we judge others around us. Um, Later on in the same passage, Matthew 7 and verse 12, he really kind of returns to this idea where we see the golden rule in Matthew 7 verse 12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. How does that relate to the context? Well, really, it's pointing us all the way back to what we saw at the beginning of Matthew 7. That doing unto others as we would have them do unto us is going along with what he said about judging others as we would want them to judge us. This is linked with the, what Jesus calls the second and greatest command. Uh, firstly, that we should love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But secondly, that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. Second greatest command isn't just that we should love our neighbor. It's that we should love our neighbor as ourselves, as we would want somebody else to judge us, that we would seek to judge them in the same way. And I think this is a very hard principle to apply uh, because there's a subtle difference between judging others in the way I would want to be judged and judging others by my own personal standards. What, what often happens, at least for me, is that I, I end up creating my own personal standards and expectations of other people that fit my personal strengths and weaknesses. Let, let me illustrate this point a little bit. Maybe you're somebody who is very energetic and active. You're an early riser. You're a go-getter, and you're always on, on the run. And then that brother or sister who, you know, has some fatigue issues and some medical issues and it is not able to have the same energy that you have, well, you know, they, they're just being a little bit lazy because they're not meeting my standard uh, that I've set up in accordance with my strengths. Or maybe your strength is that you're extremely frugal 
and you have a very strict budget avoiding all unnecessary expenditures and you have been very diligent in that way and maybe you look at your brother or sister who you know has been a little bit more free and and, and paying for some house renovation and you think well they're just not being as frugal as i'm being or maybe you're a very outgoing person you find it very easy to uh, have conversations with people and be very come across very friendly and for the person that is more introverted and has a very difficult time coming across as, as friendly and, and carrying on a conversation, you think, well, they're just not as friendly as they need to be. Or maybe you have certain standards for your children and what lessons you feel like it's important for them to learn at certain stages of life, what type of discipline you feel is, is most effective in your household, what type of things you think is appropriate to allow and not allow. And that other person whose standards of parenting are slightly different, well, they, they just need to, to get a hold of their children. With each of these things that we've just talked about, there are biblical principles that apply, right? There are biblical principles of diligence. There are biblical principles of stewardship, biblical principles uh, of being somebody who, who is friendly and encouraging and outgoing, uh, welcoming to others, rather. They're biblical principles of parenthood, no doubt, within the scriptures. But sometimes what I find myself doing is emphasizing and focusing on the aspects of that that come naturally to me and that I'm strong in. And then those areas that, you know, I'm not as strong in, well, they don't matter quite as much. And what I've done is in judging other people, instead of judging other people the way I want to be judged... I'm judging others by my standards of strengths and weaknesses. Um, I may end up judging the one-talent man by a five-talent man standard. And so we need to make sure that we are ultimately judging others the way I want to be judged, uh, ultimately by not putting them in my shoes, but putting myself in their shoes. Uh, and so that means that thing that I'm struggling with, when somebody else is struggling with something else, I need to give them the same grace and the same patience and the same understanding with that struggle as I would want them to give me with this struggle. We're all different parts of the body. But if we truly seek to love others as we would have them love us, we need to come to understand them, come to understand their difficulties and struggles. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we see the scripture's description of love. And as we talk about empathy and compassion, what we're really talking about is judging other people in love. But notice here, uh, especially in verse 6 and 7 of 1 Corinthians 13, it says in verse 6, Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love will seek out the good in others. It takes no joy in the wrongdoing of others. Uh, it doesn't highlight the faults of others. It would rather highlight the good. It would give the benefit of the doubt. I think the idea of believing all things, hoping all things, goes along with believing the best, hoping the best, desiring the best in others. And in the same context here earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we see the concept of the body. 
and how the body is to view one another. Um, and it's in that context that we are then taught about this love that we have for one another. And as we think about loving each other as we love ourselves, this body illustration is very apt. Um, that you are a part of this body. Uh, that we are a part of this together. If you notice in 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 21, 1 Corinthians 12 now, verse 21, says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no divisions in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. You see that? There are parts of the body that are deemed weaker, that are deemed less honorable. What should be our attitude towards that? You know, well, they're, they're just not as important. You know, they just don't have as much to offer. They're just not trying as hard. No, he says, in fact, we are to give more abundant honor to that part of the body. Um, we are to put forth great effort to see the value of those parts of the body that, that maybe outwardly don't appear as valuable. Right? Uh, as we go on in 1 Corinthians 12, I think some of the illustrations that he uses here um, to kind of drive it home in our minds, you might think about the, the heart or the lungs. On their own, how, how strong or, or how fragile, rather, are those parts of the body? A, a heart on its own, the lungs on its own, you know, it, it's not going to be able to defend itself. It's extremely fragile on its own. That's why so much of the body is built around it to protect that. And yet, how vital is the heart and the lungs to the function of that body? Just because outwardly it seems weaker doesn't mean that it is not extremely important. So what God is teaching us here is that we need to see the value in every part of the body. The, the hand can't look down at the feet and despise it because of its lack of dexterity. Or, or the, the mouth can't look down at the ears for its lack of ability to communicate. We need to rather place value on others, highlight their strengths, um, and be very conscious of our own limitations and weaknesses. That care and empathy for one another is what ultimately draws the body together. It's going to allow us to build one another up. What do you see when you look at this group of people? I know there have been times in my life where I have been much more in tune to my own strengths and my own good qualities. And when I felt like I was doing some task and nobody else was doing it, and, and you know, that, that, well, they're just not contributing as much to the body. The picture that we see here is that everybody has a different role, has a different strength, and I need not to judge others by the, the hand standard or the mouth standard. I need to recognize their strengths and their weaknesses and place value on them for it. You know, if the entire body was a hand, if the entire body was an eye, that wouldn't be good. 
I need to recognize that if everybody in this body was just like me, this would be an extremely weak body. We need different parts of the body in order for the body to grow. Romans 12 and verse 10 reinforces this this attitude that we're talking about. We're told, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in showing honor. Uh, The ESV says, outdo one another in showing honor. We need to be very diligent to make sure that we're showing honor to other people, that we're expressing our appreciation for them, that we're seeing the value in them. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, we're told, uh, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important, as some versions say, better than yourselves. It's often our tendency to be very in tune to our own good qualities and strengths and to treat them with greater importance and then to put less emphasis on the areas that we're weak in. We need to train ourselves to become more in tune to others' strengths and good qualities and eager to be gracious to their shortcomings. And so if we're going to uproot the judgmental spirit, we need to try to cultivate this appreciation and understanding of other people. Um, and make sure that we're not setting ourselves up on some other plane. And because they're not, they don't have the same strengths that I do, well then uh, they're uh, somehow lower uh, in, in relation to the body. But thirdly, we need to cultivate mercy. I want you to look back at Matthew 7 and now look at verse 5 again. Matthew 7 and verse 5. Jesus says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do you notice what the goal, the end goal of this passage is? We talked about how we first need to have that heart of humility and empathy. But he says, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, you notice it doesn't say, then you will see clearly to tell your brother that he has a speck in his eye. (laughs) No, rather, in this context, you are helping him. You are helping him with that failure that he's dealing with. Uh, And so that needs to be our ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal is to help that brother grow. Maybe what we're talking about here is not just a matter of strengths and weaknesses. Maybe this is a matter of right and wrong. Maybe my brother is involved in sin, is acting in some area contrary to God's will. Maybe that's something that he needs to grow in, something that he needs to change. Well, what's my attitude now? Well, now I'm justified in being judgmental of him. No. Now my goal, as it should be all along, is to help him in that, to help him grow in that, help him see that in order that he might make a change. From that example in Luke 18 of the Pharisee and the tax collector, I need to make sure that my attitude is not, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like swindlers and unjust and adulterers and tax collectors. Rather, my prayer should be, Lord, help me be a help to the adulterer. Help me reach out to the swindler and the unjust and the tax collector. Show me how I can help them and bring them towards you. James 2 and verse 13, we're told, For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. 
Mercy triumphs over judgment. Instead of being people who are quick to judge, we need to be people who are quick to show mercy. You might say, well, well, I'll show mercy, you know, where, where it's deserved. I'll show mercy when somebody changes. You know, the very definition of mercy is to show grace, to show goodness to people who don't deserve it. It's not that they have to meet some threshold and then I'll act merciful towards them. No, I need to be extending that mercy in hopes that they will change, in hopes that they will see their error and be restored to the Lord. We did not deserve mercy. We at no point have deserved God's mercy, but God is willing to extend it towards us in hopes that we will change. How much more should we be willing to extend mercy towards our fellow man? Galatians 6 verse 1 and 2, talks about how we deal with a brother who is caught in a trespass. Notice it says, You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. We see that attitude of humility, looking towards ourselves, recognizing that we are just as susceptible But notice the prescription here is not that we look down our nose at him. It's not that we tell him everything that he's doing wrong, tell him everything that he needs to change, point out the areas that he's failing. The goal is restore such a one. Now that's going to involve making sure that he understands his sin, making sure he understands the need for change, but that's not the end goal. You know, rebuke is a lot easier than restoring. (laughs) Restoring requires a lot more effort, a lot more long-term effort. And so the picture that we have here is not us just telling people everything that they're doing wrong. The picture that we have is us getting down and bearing the burden with them, helping lift them up. That's restoring. And that's what anybody who is spiritual, anybody who has the fruits of the Spirit, as talked about in Galatians 5, needs to be doing. That's the goal. Brethren, Christians could accomplish a lot more good in the world if we spend a little less effort pointing out everything that is wrong with our society and a little more effort seeking to help fix it. Let's make sure that that's where our ultimate focus is. When we encounter shortcomings and sins of others around us, we need to have the attitude of Jesus. Remember in Luke 15. Here in Luke 15, we're told three parables. uh, The parable of the lost sheep, of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost or the prodigal son. When the sheep goes astray in that first parable, what did the shepherd do? Did he sit around talking to all the other sheep about how so-and-so never really listened? And he never was a very good follower anyway. And look, you know, so-and-so went and got himself lost. No, the shepherd leaves the 99 and diligently sought out the one sheep. We're told in verse 7, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Is that our attitude? Is that our heart? That's the heart of the God that we serve. That there is no greater joy than to see 
the rebellious restored, than to see the lost found. He takes no joy in the fact that they're lost and lifting himself up and saying, well, at least I'm not like him. No, his joy is in seeking him out and finding him and bringing him home. Can you imagine a doctor who, who took the judgmental approach? Uh, imagine for a moment that, that a, a little boy comes into his office with a broken arm and he spends a half hour lecturing him on bone health and safety and doesn't do anything for his arm. <laughs> no, of course, the doctor's primary goal there is to make sure that that wound is healed. Now, he's going to try to help him avoid that type of wound in the future. It's not that there's no place for instruction, but we need to remember what the goal is. The goal is healing. That's the goal of the great physician. That's the goal of the shepherd, bringing the sheep home. We need the heart of the shepherd, the heart of the physician, the heart of the loving Father, later on the parable of the prodigal son, you remember the heart of the older brother. As his father is rejoicing, the older brother thinks, well, you never acted that way towards me. He doesn't deserve this kind of reception. Uh, The son who has been rebellious, who has taken your inheritance and squandered it. Brethren, do we have the heart of our father? Do we rejoice at what he rejoices in? Or are we more interested in justice? If we recognize what true justice is, we'd know that we don't deserve anything that our Father has given us. We need to be thankful that God is both just and merciful. Because in the way that we judge, we will be judged. If we want to be judged with mercy, which we desperately need, then we need to be judging others with mercy as well. And so what do you see in the mirror today? Certainly, there is a place for judgment uh, where we need to instruct others in the righteous judgment of God, where we need to show people the sin that they need to be saved from, But let's remember what the goal is, and let's remember the attitude that we need to have in doing such. We need to recognize that we are in the same condition. To approach this with humility, with love and empathy, not judging others by our own standard, but putting ourselves in their shoes, loving our neighbor as ourselves, and ultimately having Jesus' goal of showing mercy, of helping pick people up and bring them to the Lord that the lost may be found. Do you see some change that you need to make in your attitude towards others, toward yourself, towards your relationship with God? Is there a plank in your eye that needs to be removed? Maybe you need the help of some of these brethren, or maybe you need to ask for their forgiveness. Our goal is to help each other remove the specks and planks from our eye, to help each of us grow the way that God wants us to, to eliminate the sins, uh, the, the areas that we have broken God's perfect character in our lives, that we can help each other grow in that. But we recognize that God alone is the judge. And we simply are trying to point each other towards him. Because not only is he the judge, but he is a loving father, a caring shepherd. 
and a tender physician. If you're willing to turn to him in humility today, he is eager to show you mercy. So if you recognize that there is some change that needs to be made, if it's a change of a public nature, you need to confess a sin before these brethren and ask for their prayers. God is just and faithful to forgive. If you've never committed your life to the Lord, you've never come to the great physician for healing, you can confess your belief in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and by his grace, you can bury that old man of sin and baptism, and you can be raised to walk in newness of life. As if anybody is subject to the Lord's invitation today, we ask that you'll make it known by coming forward as we stand and sing together.